You are now listening to the May 18th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and it's time to pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time. Ephesians 4.29 says, that our communication is to be edifying for the need of the moment, to give grace to the one who hears. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, Polly, on Walking Our Talk. So communication, uh, we didn't have any problem with that at the beginning <laughs> of our marriage, did we? Well, we didn't have any problem with it at the beginning of our dating relationship. <laughs> no, because we loved each other so much, and we were just trying to agree with each other so much, and that was fine. Then you we got so married, and then what to. happened? <laughs> what do you remember? Because I don't remember anything except we used to have pretty big fights. I mean, Polly and I were friends and, and then became lovers. And so uh, we were able to talk about all kinds of things at the beginning of our relationship but she also – she felt very strongly about certain things. So I remember we used to fight about things. But then we'd just sort of leave it and go to the next time and, I don't know, hang out with each other. But as we got married, it became like a big deal and we got defensive and that's – Well, a- I think even in our – in our dating relationship and in our engagement period, we did have some really big arguments, mm-hmm. really big Major and we went to our corners, right? You went to your dorm and I went to my... Yeah, we I mean, were, we would uh, just hash things out for long periods but of time. I, I remember a time where we were um, we were a part of a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, and we were at training in a summer place where we were taking classes and stuff, and we would got into this big row, and you said to me, you're just like so-and-so, and you're going to leave me just like so-and-so. And this was before, you know, I think we were dating. Uh, I don't know. It was a little different back then. But I just remember saying to myself, oh, if this gal wants to know that I'm committed to her, I better stay put, even though she's got these fangs out and is yelling at me. Um, and disagreeing and stuff. So I just said, I am not that other person that you dated before me, and I'm going to, I'm here. I want to commit to this relationship. We just didn't know the technique of how to talk to each other without making each other defensive, and that's what we want to share today on this episode. That's right. I, I think we, as you say, did not know how to fight right. We didn't know how to disagree with each other agreeably, how to talk about an issue and keep the issue at the center and attack the issue without attacking each other. So a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. That's Proverbs (laughs) 18, 2. 
he who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him, Proverbs 18, 13. So careful listening is a precious gift we can give to our partner. And there are hindrances to listening. We're going to go into there are two skills that everybody for the past whatever 20 years that we've done these communication workshops or more. 30. Uh, 30. (laughs) Well, I'm getting older every year. So, but the two skills that everyone seems to give us great feedback on are the communistar, which is like a experiential hat rack to put your emotions, your thoughts, your wants, your sense data, what you hear, see, taste, touch, uh, to get God's perspective and discernment. But we're not going to go through that today. We're going to be talking about closing the loop, which means there's a sender and a receiver, and everyone seems to appreciate this. It slows down the communication, and for those people who think really fast, they don't like this, so it's frustrating for them. But you have a a sender and a receiver. So the sender, your job is to send your message, and the receiver's job is to receive it, not to change it, not to say, oh, you don't feel that way. I mean, one time, Paulie and I were going to a meeting, and uh, it was actually somebody's house, and there were people that we've known for 20 years who love her, and she just said in the car, um, I'm feeling uh, nervous about going to this. And I'm thinking, why are you feeling nervous? These people love us. Matter of fact, they love you more than they love me. Um, but I said to her, well, don't feel nervous. That's not good. <laughs> and she said, that doesn't comfort me at all when you say that. And so uh, I had to learn to say, oh, you're feeling nervous rather than um you know, giving my message, I needed to feed back to her, her message. So there's a sender, a receiver. Sender sends the message. You need to know what your message is and what issue you're talking about. And we take one issue at a time. Sender sends the message. The receiver gives it back in their own words. They summarize it. Some people call this active listening. And so you give that back to the sender and the sender says, well, that's it, but it's not quite it. I, let me, you know, so they get to clarify. And it is the sender's message. Let them finish speaking. I have a lot of women who say, my husband doesn't talk. But as soon as he gives an answer, she goes, well, that's not the way it is. And blah, blah, blah. And, and so she gets all into interrupting him. And then he shuts down and pulls away. And most men, like we said, you know, they have about 10,000 words and women have 20,000. And we already have used them up when we've gotten home from work. So we need you to give us space. So the sender sends, the receiver receives, the sender clarifies until the sender, both in body language and in verbiage says, yes, that's it. That's what I'm saying. And then the receiver, it's the receiver's turn at that point. They become the sender. And and all you're looking for, the goal here is understanding. If you look at that proverb, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. So if all I'm worried about is what I'm going to say to you, and I'm not thinking about what you're saying, then pretty soon I feel devalued, shut down, and like you don't care. And I've had those words said to me (laughs) by my wife when I've just answered her back and said, that's a ridiculous idea. 
rather than just saying, so you want to move that wall? And I'm thinking, I'm calculating the cost and the fact that it's very impractical to move the wall, especially if it's a weight-bearing wall in our house and all that sort of thing. So at any rate, Polly's laughing at me. So what are some hindrances? Let's, what are some hindrances? <laughs> hindrances to good listening, Polly. Well, I think one of the major hindrances is that we're caught up in in our own argument. What am I going to say back to you? So I'm wanting to defend myself. I'm wanting to counter your argument. And so I stop listening to what you're saying because I want to prepare my own arguments. So right. So you're not like, listening. Right. So I'm not listening there. But there are other, lots of other hindrances to listening. Um, maybe our emotions get in the way. I start to get angry or upset or anxious about something. And my emotions will keep me from being able to hear what you're saying. Or um, we have a lot of habits uh that distract us from being able to listen. We're constantly looking at our cell phone or our computer screen or we have the television on. And we don't turn those things off. So we don't put ourselves in a place where we don't have physical distractions around us. If we really need to talk about something, we need some privacy. We need to uh, send the children into another room or we, we need to turn and face each other and give each other our full attention. So what are some things that are helpful to listening? Well, I think uh, we just sort of touched on it a little bit. One is to put away all of our distractions, turn off the TV, turn off uh our cell phone or set it away. They, they say that just the presence of a cell phone can be a hindrance to communication. So if, if we really need to talk to each other about something serious, I need to put away all the distractions. And sometimes I need to even move uh, a physical barrier. Maybe I'm I can see you, but I'm behind a desk or I'm on the other side of a kitchen counter or something. So if I come around to the other side and we can close the physical distance between us, then I can hear you more readily. Right. So there are internal barriers and there are external barriers, and we need to be aware of those and remove them as much as we can. Yeah, and I think we also need to keep our minds open and have an attitude of receptivity. I want to hear what you have to say, even uh, if I'm expecting, <laughs> it goes back to the expectations, even if I'm expecting that you're going to come at me with both barrels and blast me. Um, well, and that blasting may not be actually loud, boisterous blasting. You may say you're shouting, even though I'm going... You don't know what shouting is here, well, but it's, it's just the way it's being said, either sarcastically or a little different tone, or it's just something that's been a bump in the road that we've never actually resolved. And so the hurts from the past end up blocking the communication in the present and 
many times what I do with couples is go back and just say, when did this start? And then we go back to an issue that's never been resolved, never been forgiven. So now we go back to that whole thing about the needing need for forgiveness, forgiving others as Christ forgave me, and keeping short accounts so that basically everything that is unresolved, at least as much as I can know it, has been resolved so we can deal with the present situation rather than always going back. If you keep going around in a circle and always end up the same place, you probably need to take a different road. (laughs) (laughs) So in our communication, we have these pitfalls and um, we need to be aware what is it that's really causing us not to connect right now. And we think the closing the loop process can slow down the process and help us know one person is the sender, one is the receiver, that's the rule. And so I can't interrupt. I need to value you. And I also need to use the word I rather than you. Instead of saying you, which might as well be followed by dummy, that's what we say in our workshop, that that we're devaluing the person and they don't want to be devalued. And even if we're very different in what we are believing, we can speak respectfully, which by the way, our culture doesn't do anything to help us in this vein, at least in the United States these well, days. Well, and sometimes <clears throat> we unconsciously trigger responses in our partner that we don't know we are doing mm. by saying certain words or not doing certain things. And so we like to ask couples to answer this question for each other, what can I do to help you open up to me? What can I, Polly, do to help you, Alan, right. so open ma- up to me? Like, I, uh, to let you know, I want to hear what you have to say. I know I get defensive, but, but tell me what it is that I need to do so that you can feel the freedom to share openly what your thoughts and your feelings are. So for me, that was eye contact. I really need your eye contact to feel like you're in the game, even though you say you can knit or do something else and listen to me. It doesn't feel like it, and therefore it would be helpful if you would put the laundry down or whatever and look at me and and not talk room to room. And for you, it was please don't interrupt me and don't finish my sentence because that takes you in a different direction. So for you, what we'd encourage you to do is sit down with your partner. First of all, sit down alone and think about that question. What can I do to help you open up to me and write that down and uh, then share it with each other. Take The thing is, communication (laughs) takes time, and it really does take work. And so uh, we're back to planning again. Plan for a time where the kids are in bed, where we can talk. Sometimes we put the kids in bed, and we're just two dish rags talking to each other, and it gets into a fight. So we might have to say, this Saturday, let's talk and take an hour, put the video on, even though we don't normally put videos on for the kids, and get a time where we can really talk. And for some people, it may be a restaurant. For other people, it may be a library uh, with a soundproof booth. Well, and here's the thing. We don't see a lot of good patterns of communication around us, especially not on television. And 
the the stuff that gets laughs on the television screen in a sitcom <laughs> does not really work in a marriage. And so if if I grew up with say Archie Bunker and All in the Family, which I don't even know if the people that are listening to this will even understand. Or Gilmore Girls, where where they it's have all these quick, Carmen. snappy comebacks. Or, or some who's... of the shows where they throw F-bombs at one another constantly. Well, you know, that's all that's all fine as, in a sitcom. I don't know the, if it's those, even fine it's, in a sitcom. <laughs> well, they're made for to get a certain response right. from the audience. But those things don't work. In, in your real marriage life, relationship, yeah. in real life, you come back with that snappy uh, zinger and your partner feels humiliated or cut down or uh, not listened to or angry. And you, you're getting exactly the opposite response. You don't have that laugh track going on in yeah, the background right. like they have on the TV shows. I think uh, here are 10 quick principles on communication from Patrick Morley in a devotional he did. And I'm just going to give you the, the highlights. Be patient. Remain calm. Listen carefully. Don't respond too quickly. Speak gently. A gentle answer turns away wrath is what Proverbs says. Do not speak rashly or recklessly. Life and death is in the power of the tongue, Proverbs tells us. Don't escalate the conflict and don't return injury for injury. Don't say everything that comes into your mind. Uh, Many arguments could be stopped by that. And lastly, he says, trust the Lord to solve your conflicts. Have you asked God to participate in this conversation? And many times, it's very hard to pray with somebody that you're unreconciled with. And that's probably the first key is humility and being able to say, hey, I'm sorry, I did raise my voice, that was wrong, or I threw a barb at you, and that was or a sarcastic comment. And so communication is a key to marriage. And if you want to read more about this, we have our Marital Mystery Tour book and also the Audible, uh, on Audible, go to Amazon, and Audible, I guess, uh, has a, um, uh, a... what, an MP3 that you can right, download. It's a, it, right, it's an and, audio link. Uh, our website is uh, walkandtalk, W-A-L-K-A-N-D-T-A-L-K dot org, O-R-G. So we'll be talking more about things we can do to walk our talk in marriage. And um, this has been really good. I think we've given some good tips for these folks to use, and and we encourage you. The other thing is if you go to our website, Paulie and I actually role play this closing the loop, and we give you the diagram. The diagram's also in the book. So feel free to go to the website, walkandtalk.org, look under resources, under videos, and then scroll down, and you'll actually see us doing a role play that uh, to me is pretty funny, but uh, most people get a lot out of it. So we'll see you next time. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is the story of Scripture and the questions of life. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. The story of Joseph, and I am so looking forward to walking through this story because it is so applicable to our lives, which is what the story of Joseph is all about. So I want to walk you through this story that spans from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, and I want you to see who God is and how God works in a world of sin and hurt in a way that I pray will give you, right where you are sitting right now, a rock-solid foundation to stand on when you hurt in different ways. And especially for those of you who would not say you're a follower of Jesus right now, maybe you're visiting with a friend or family member or on your own, I want you to know I am glad you're here. You are always welcome here. Genesis 37, verse 1, the Bible says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. We've read in our Bible reading about Jacob's love for his wife, Rachel, who was barren for many years, but finally she gave birth to a son. They named him Joseph. And verse 3 here in chapter 37 says that Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And he showed it to him by giving him a multicolored robe, a picture of this close relationship he had with his dad. Now, as a result of being the favorite son, he was also the despised brother, a little tattletale running to mom and dad with all the things his brothers do wrong, and Joseph's brothers hated him for it. Of course, it didn't help things when Joseph would come down to the breakfast table in the morning and say, guess what I dreamed about last night? All of you guys were bowing down at my feet past the eggs. One day, the brothers were together out in the field, and they saw Joseph coming their way, wearing his nice coat, and they came up with a plan. The initial idea was to kill him. They hated him. Then Reuben persuaded them with a different plan. Reuben said, let's throw Joseph into a pit and leave him to die. And Reuben was thinking to himself that he would come back later and rescue Joseph. But interestingly, it wasn't Reuben's plan that came to fruition. Instead, it was a plan that Judah proposed. And this is important. I want you to notice all throughout the story how Judah plays an important role. 
So when a caravan of Ishmaelites comes down the road, Judah proposes that they sell Joseph off as a slave to them. These Ishmaelites, also called Midianites in the story, pay 20 shekels for the despised and now robeless brother. The brothers take the robe back to their father, dipped in blood, and make up a story about how an animal had devoured Joseph. And Jacob mourns, in a sense for the next 22 years, mourns, thinking that Joseph is dead. Little does Jacob know, though, that Judah's decision has spared Joseph's life. That leads to Genesis 39. Turn over there with me, where we see Joseph as the slave in a foreign land. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard, buys Joseph from the Ishmaelites to be his slave in Egypt. Pick up what happens there in Genesis 39, verse 2. The Bible says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. You see what's happening here? The promise God had made all throughout what we've read in Genesis to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that through their offspring, the blessing of God would come to the nations. It's happening here, albeit in the unlikeliest of circumstances, Joseph as a slave in Egypt. Now, as if things were not difficult enough working as a slave in a foreign land, one day Potiphar's wife approaches Joseph. She'd made various passes at him, and he had resisted all of them, which is a helpful side note, like God help every single man and woman, which leads to this next picture of Joseph, the pure servant. A total contrast, actually, with Judah in Genesis 38 before this. And really, in all these stories that we're reading in Genesis, we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob willing to compromise their integrity at certain points, giving their wives to foreign rulers. Now, when Joseph is sought by the wife of a foreign ruler, he resists and he runs like, Oh, that may be the word God has brought many of you today to hear. Run. I'm guessing there are some, maybe many, dabbling in sexual sin or temptation in this way or that way. At this point, God in his grace is saying to you and me, us and his word, right now together, run. Don't rationalize. Run. The problem for Joseph is that when he runs, his coat is left behind. And as a result, he's framed by Potiphar's wife. Subsequently, he becomes the slandered prisoner. Through no fault of his own, Joseph was righteous, pure, and holy. And yet he's imprisoned for 13 years in a dungeon. There, slandered and imprisoned, Joseph rises to leadership. And after many years go by, one day the king's cupbearer and baker make a bad batch of food and drink, and the king sends them to jail, where one night they can't sleep, and they both have dreams that leave them pretty confused the next morning. Joseph just so happens to walk by them that morning, sees them confused, and asks them what's wrong. They tell him about their dreams, and Joseph ends up interpreting them. One of them, Joseph says, the cupbearer will live. The other, baker, will die. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, who's going to live, Hey, when you get out, don't forget about me. Tell Pharaoh about me so I can get out of this prison. And what Joseph 
said ends up happening. Indeed, the cupbearer lives, but the cupbearer forgets Joseph. That is, until two years later, Pharaoh doesn't sleep well one night, and he has a dream. No one in Egypt can interpret that dream. So while Pharaoh is sharing it with all of his magicians, it just so happens that the cupbearer overhears what's going on, and the cupbearer tells Pharaoh, I know just the guy to help you. And before you know it, Joseph is brought into Pharaoh's presence. Once there, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, a dream that foretells seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt to be followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, you better start storing up a reserve right now. Pharaoh is overwhelmed by the spirit of God in Joseph and says, you need to be over my house and over all the people in Egypt in order to lead us through this. So check out chapter 41, verse 42. See a total transformation here. Joseph goes from being a slave imprisoned in a dungeon to, watch this, chapter 41, verse 42, says, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Favorite son, despised brother, and slave in a foreign land, becomes the leader over all the land. Joseph basically becomes the prime minister in Egypt with authority over all the people of Egypt. And not just in Egypt, but because of the impending famine and the preparations made under Joseph's leadership, many peoples and nations would come to Egypt and specifically to Joseph to beg for food. So thus the stage is set in chapter 42 for Jacob to say, look at verse 1. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt amidst this famine, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. And if you've been reading, you know what happens next. In a winding plot, Jacob's sons are unknowingly brought before Joseph, their brother. They don't recognize this brother they sold into slavery, and yet they are bowing down, begging for food. And through a series of circumstances leading up to Genesis 45, Joseph becomes the restorative brother in the story. And that, again, is Judah's prominent role. When you step back and look at it, you realize these chapters actually revolve around an interplay between Joseph and Judah. In their first journey to see Joseph, Joseph requests that the brothers go home and bring Benjamin back with them. So after they go back in Genesis chapter 43, they're contemplating whether or not to make that second trip, this time with Benjamin. Jacob is trying to decide whether or not he sends off his sons, and it's Judah who steps up and says, I will take responsibility for Benjamin. We must go. Chapter 43, verse 9, Judah basically offers himself as a pledge, a guarantee that Benjamin will be safe. Then the next chapter, chapter 44, says that Judah and his brothers appeared before Joseph. And Judah is the one who speaks before Joseph. And Judah is the one who offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin when Joseph says, Benjamin must stay in Egypt. All that leads to chapter 45, where Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers. And he says, go Get our father Jacob and bring him and all your families here so you can be provided for. And in chapter 46, verse 28, Jacob sends Judah to lead the caravan into Egypt. Now, through this interplay between Joseph and Judah, the restoration happens in the family. And ultimately, the last picture of Joseph comes to the surface. 
Joseph becomes the reunited son. Chapter 46, verse 28, gives us this picture. Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. That's another term for Egypt. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, Jacob, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel, in other words, Jacob said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know you are still alive. It leads to chapter 47 where Jacob and all his sons settle in Egypt while Joseph rules. In chapter 48, Jacob blesses Joseph's two sons. In chapter 49, he blesses all of his sons, including both Judah and Joseph. And then Jacob dies, leading Joseph in chapter 50 of Genesis to fall on his face weeping as the reunited son. And that is the story of Joseph. Story and all these pictures in Joseph's life come together to set the stage for the story's punchline and maybe the greatest punchline in all the Old Testament. It's our memory verse this week, even though we haven't read this chapter yet. So let's say it out loud together. I'll put it on the screen, but don't look at the screen if you've memorized it. So let's say Genesis 50, verse 20, all together. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is where I want us to see the sovereignty of God in the suffering of Joseph. The story of Joseph and not just in his story, in our stories. In a world of sin and hurt and Things not going like we planned. What does it mean for God to be sovereign? And why is this so significant for our lives? Four truths. Number one, in a world of sin and suffering, for God to be sovereign means that you are never alone. Go back to Genesis 39 with me. Remember Joseph in Potiphar's house and the story with Potiphar's wife? Well, we talk about how when the Bible repeats something, we should sit up and take notice. Well, let me show you a phrase that is repeated four times in this one chapter. You might circle it or underline it or highlight it in your Bible some way. The phrase that we're looking for is the Lord was with Joseph. So right after Joseph was sold as a slave to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers, listen to what the Bible tells us. Chapter 39, verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. There it is the first time right there at the beginning of verse two. And he became a successful man. And he's in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that second time the Lord was with him. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So two times we hear the Lord was with him. And then look how the chapter ends. After Joseph flees temptation, gets slandered, he's being thrown into prison. Listen to what the Bible says in verse 20. Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But... The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Two times in the beginning of the chapter, 
like bookends two times in the end of the chapter, the Bible intentionally shows us that in the deepest, darkest moments of Joseph's life, the Lord was with him. And because God was with him, Joseph was able to stand and even rise in the midst of difficulties because he was not alone. Do not miss this. In all that Joseph went through, he was never alone. And the Bible is showing us here a truth that does not just apply to Joseph. This is a truth that applies to all who trust in God. The same God whose presence was with Joseph in that pit from which he was sold and the house in which he served and the prison in which he was thrown before the Pharaoh to whom he was summoned, that same God is with you. Hear what the Bible is saying to you today. God is with you in your highs, and God is with you in your lows. When things are going great, the God of the universe is with you. And when things are at their worst, when nothing is going right, when things are not working out like you planned, God, the God of the universe, is with you. And in those dark, hard, hurtful moments when you feel like you are alone, when you feel like no one else is understanding or no one else knows, God himself is with you. He knows and understands. You are never alone. Second truth, flowing from that, in a world of sin and suffering, things are never out of control. You know, it's interesting. Nowhere in Joseph's story do we find like, breathtaking displays of supernatural power. Instead, what we have are subtle details that point us to the invisible hand of God who is overseeing every single thing that's happening, even the worst things that are happening. Think about it. Who's in control here? Joseph is sold into slavery, unjustly thrown into prison. So does that mean evil or sin are in control? Well, look at chapter 45. You've got to see this. When Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, what do we expect Joseph to do? Like, let him have it, right? Get down and prepare for your punishment. That's not what he does. Look at chapter 45. Listen to verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Do you hear this? Verse 5, God sent me here. God did this. Verse 7, God sent me before you. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 9, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. God did this. Notice what Joseph doesn't say here. You sent me here, and God did the best he could with what you had done. No, Joseph says, God sent me here. It was God who did it. Listen to the language in that memory verse, Genesis 50, 20. It's intentional. God meant it. 
God intended it. God purposed it. God did it. When Psalm 105, 16 and 17 looks back at the story, the Bible says God is the one who summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread and sent a man, Joseph, ahead to be sold as a slave. God did this. Now, it's not that the brothers weren't responsible for their sin, what they did. And listen to Joseph's words. You sold me here. You sold me in Egypt, but God sent me to Egypt. How does that work? Well, follow this with me because we're seeing something here in the beginning of the Bible that we will see all over the Bible after this. And this needs to be clear in our minds. Follow it in your notes there. People make choices. Human responsibility for sin cannot be denied. All throughout this story, Joseph's brothers are responsible for what they did to Joseph and in other facets of their lives. And they're held responsible. We see this especially in Jacob's blessing and cursing of his sons in Genesis 49. Human responsibility cannot be denied here. Every one of us is responsible before God for our actions, our choices, our decisions, thoughts, desires. We make choices. People make sinful choices for which people, we are responsible. At the same time, though, that we make choices, God is in control. And his will in the world cannot be stopped. Even in the worst of circumstances, God is working. That's the picture we're seeing here in such a way that Joseph, after being sold into slavery and imprisoned in a dungeon, he says, God sent me here. Like This is a mystery, how this works, how God is sovereign while we are responsible. We all experience all kinds of hurt in our lives directly due to sin in us or in others. And as we experience this, we must be careful to keep these two truths in tension. Men and women are responsible before God for sin, sin that causes suffering. We make choices that affect our lives, that affect others' lives, and we are responsible for those choices. At the same time, in a mysterious way, God is still sovereign over all things, which means that things are never out of control. God is ultimately in control. And here's why this is so important. I've mentioned this before, but there are a lot of people today, even some professing Christians who believe that God is doing the best he can when it comes to evil and sin in the world, but some things are just out of his control. And I want you to see what a hopeless, hollow, ultimately unbiblical worldview that is. Imagine Joseph with that worldview, seeing himself as a victim of hopeless chance. His brothers sell him off, he's thrown into prison, and God is with him, but what does that really matter? God couldn't keep him from being thrown in there. There's no guarantee he'll ever get out. God is apparently powerless against evil and sin, which means Joseph would have no reason for hope in any kind of better future. But no, this is not how Joseph thinks. Joseph knows the sovereignty of God, Joseph knows that God is in control even in the worst of circumstances. So after years in slavery, after 13 years in a dungeon, he doesn't go off and slander Potiphar's wife who had lied about him. He doesn't bring down the cupbearer for years, had forgotten about him. And when he sees his brothers, he doesn't condemn them for selling him into slavery. Instead, he says, come near to me and listen. God ultimately did all this. God sent me here. God led me here. God has been in control. Brothers and sisters, in a world of sin and suffering, take heart. Things are never ultimately out of control. Which leads right into the third truth that's so 
huge. So for God to be sovereign means that he's with us. He is ultimately in control. And in a world of sin and suffering, God is always working for our good. So we just said God's will can't be stopped. So what is his will? Hear his will. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is the will of God? Here it is straight from the Bible. God's will is to work all things together for good for those who love and trust him and are called according to his purpose. This means that as you look to God, you can know that God is never overlooking any of the details in your life. And let's be honest, sometimes we wonder if he is. Don't you sometimes wonder, does God see this? God aware of what's happening right now? We begin to wonder if God sees or if God cares. If God is overlooking some of the details in our lives. And this is where I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, for all who trust in God, God is ever orchestrating all of the details in your life. Again, not in some way people aren't responsible for sin. That's not what we're seeing in this story. Instead, what we're seeing is a God who is working behind the scenes at every second. And think of it, I use this language intentionally here. God is orchestrating a variety of circumstances. You think about Joseph's life. You could take any one of a number of incidents that happened to him and you could write tragedy over the top of them. But when you put them all together, you see a beautiful picture of what God was doing in it all. Think about Joseph in prison. He tells the cupbearer what his dream means and he says, please don't forget me. And the cupbearer totally forgets him. Well, praise God he forgot Joseph so that at just the right time, when Pharaoh needs a dream interpreted, the cupbearer just happens to be standing there at that moment and says, I know a guy who can help you interpret that dream. You don't plan that. God has this thing rigged. God is orchestrating a variety of circumstances and a variety of people. Do we realize today that your life or my life is not the only life God is working in? And who can imagine the world does not revolve around us? So, so to go back to the cupbearer situation, the only reason the cupbearer was in prison is because he had apparently done something minor that had upset Pharaoh. So God used a bad mood one day in Pharaoh's life to send a cupbearer to prison so he could have a dream one night, look confused the next morning, see Joseph walk by at that moment. This is not just God working in Joseph's life. This is God working in everybody's life. So realize this. Realize this. When you or I ask, God, what are you doing in my life? The answer may be what God is doing in somebody else's life. When you get that diagnosis and you're sitting with that unbelieving doctor and you're showing a faith in Jesus that supersedes any diagnosis in the world, there's something that's happening in this doctor's heart and life. Countless examples. What God is doing in your life may be an integral part of what God is doing in somebody else's life and vice versa. God is orchestrating a variety of circumstances and a variety of people for a variety of goals. God is bringing Joseph to humility and joy and gladness, bringing Joseph's brothers to a point of confession, honesty. God is bringing Jacob to ultimate fulfillment. And for God's people, this is the whole point of Genesis 50, 20. All of these goals are ultimately good. That's the point. God is able to take evil and turn it into good. Think about this. This is huge. Even the wicked words and actions of sinful men who wanted nothing but to harm Joseph, God used for good. Even in the actions of sinful people who want nothing but to harm you, God uses ultimately for good. God is able to take evil, turn it into good, and God is able to take suffering and turn it into satisfaction. Listen to chapter 41, verse 50. 
When Joseph has two sons, listen to what he names them. You name your sons after this whole journey. Verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And then verse 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Memorize that verse. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Ultimately, always for the good of those who trust in him. And I know it's hard to see in the moment, isn't it? It's really hard to see and even believe in the moment. And even still, some are not convinced. Even still, some ask, God will take evil and turn it into good. How do we know that God takes suffering and turns it into satisfaction? Some of you are in the middle of deep pain and hurt right now, and you're wondering, how can I really know that God is going to make me fruitful in the land of my affliction? And that question leads to the fourth truth here. For God to be sovereign means that in a world of sin and suffering, God will ultimately save us for his glory. You see this story in Genesis, and it's not ultimately about Joseph or Judah. This story is about Jesus and his love for you and his promises to you. You say, what do you mean? Well, see the parallels here between the stories of Joseph and Jesus, because in both their stories, follow this, God sovereignly uses a dreadful sin to save his people. Here with Joseph, God uses brothers who want to kill him and who settle for selling their brother into slavery. How horrible is that? Yet God uses that horrible sin to bring about salvation for many lives, setting the stage for one day when God will use the horrible sin of men and women who falsely accuse and slander. Jesus, the Son of God, sentence him to death, nail him to a cross in the most cruel form of death imaginable. God used their horrible, dreadful, murderous sin ultimately to bring about salvation for many lives, including you and me. Think about this. This is breathtaking. God sovereignly transforms the actions of sinners into the accomplishment of their salvation. Think about this. God used the brother's sin to save the brother's lives from famine. And in the same mysteriously beautiful way, God used the sins of people. Think about this. Sins of people who were nailing Jesus to a cross. Think about it. In committing that sin, they were actually making the way for them to be forgiven of their sin. Look at the picture here. Go back to these brothers. They're standing before the brother they had sold into slavery and Joseph weeps and he says to them, come close, because of your sin against me, I will now provide for you. This makes no sense, but this is the gospel. We stand before Jesus, God in the flesh, who we have all sinned against. And he says to us, come close, because of sin against me, I will now provide for you. Then on a bigger picture level, think about the stories of Judah and Jesus. So I pointed out this interplay between Joseph and Judah in the story because it's there for a reason. Yes, it's Joseph whom God uses to provide for his people, but you look back and it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. It was Judah's insistence that brought the brothers back to Joseph a second time. And in the end, it was Judah who led the people of God into the land. There, Jacob blesses his sons. You gotta see this, Genesis 49. Jacob blesses his sons. And when he gets to Judah, listen to what he says to Judah. Verse eight, Genesis 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. 
From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Follow this. Now it's Judah to whom the father's sons will bow down. It's Judah who will be the lion. And it's Judah who will one day have a king, a ruler, the scepter's staff, a king from his line, to whom shall be the obedience of all the peoples. The point of this story in Genesis is ultimately to preserve the line of Judah because one day God will take the lion of Judah in Genesis and make him the lamb who was slain for us. This promise in Genesis 49, in the beginning of the Bible, is ultimately fulfilled in the end of the Bible. So a little spoiler alert, but this is where the story's headed. Revelation 5, 5 through 10, I'll put it on the screen. Weep no more. Talking about Jesus, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, a picture of Jesus crucified for our sins with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. He went and took the scrolls from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, talking about God the Father. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is the lion of Judah to whom all people and nations will one day bow. Which leads us then to the story of you and Jesus. You and I, we all are sinners and we are all surrounded by sinners in this world. We live with them. We work with them. We're led by them. And as a result, you and I, we all hurt and suffer in all kinds of ways that we would not plan. But please hear this good news. In this world of sin and suffering, you are not alone. The God of the universe is with you. And in this world of sin and suffering, things are not out of control. Oh, see every detail in our lives right now. And remember, you are not in control. I'm not in control. Evil, sin are not in control. God is ultimately in control. Even in the midst of the words, things, God is ultimately in control. And God has promised to work all things together, every detail together in a world of sin and suffering for your good. He is able to take evil and turn it into good, able to take sorrow and turn it into satisfaction. If you're having a hard time believing this, I invite you, just look at the cross of Jesus Christ where God took the most evil act ever committed in the world, the murderous crucifixion of his son. God took the most evil act ever committed in the world and he turned it into the greatest act ever committed in the world salvation for your soul. This is the gospel, especially for those of you who have not trusted in Jesus. This is the good news we celebrate every week, every moment in our lives is that we have sinned against God or separated from God in our sin, but God has not left us alone in our sin. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus has paid the price for our sin. He is not distant from us in a world of sin and suffering. He came to us and he paid the price for our sin. He suffered on our behalf. And then the good news keeps getting better because he didn't just die for our sin. He rose from the grave in victory over sin so that you and I could be forgiven and restored to God. Praise God. Because he is sovereign, your sin does not have to be the end of your story. Because God is sovereign, your sin does not have to be the end of your story. God has taken 
the suffering of his son on a cross for you and made a way for you to have eternal satisfaction. So you can look to him and trust in him. Believe today the God who is with you and who is in control is working for your good and ultimately for his glory. And the one who saves you from sin promises to one day glorify you with him. Let's pray. Oh God, I don't presume, we don't presume to be able to grasp all that we've just seen in our finite minds. They would know that you are with them. Men and women, every man and woman within the sound of my voice would know you are with them, that you are ultimately sovereign over all and you are working all together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose and that one day, you, Jesus, we praise you for making that possible through your death on the cross for us and your resurrection from the grave. So help us to trust in your sovereignty amidst our suffering. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Coming up next is, It's Time to Pray the Bible. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I am the host of this program. It's time to pray the Bible. Whenever I meditate on Psalm 23, this poetic praise to God fills my heart with overwhelming gratitude as it brings me back to the year 2007. From July through December, I lost four members of my beloved family through sudden death. When others were celebrating the holiday season, my heart was walking through the storms of life. However, in that darkest moment, God's revelation of His unfailing love began to flood my soul as the brightest beacon of light. Through His truth and abounding grace, I knew that I needed to fully trust God's unfailing love and His goodness in this valley of suffering. Over the next few months, other Christians have asked me the following questions. How can a good God allow this deep pain to happen to you and your family? How can He cause this season of terrible losses to work together for good? Beloved friends, have you ever asked these same questions to yourselves as you have faced tragedies, terrible losses, and the deepest of pain in your lives? Or maybe you're going through them right now. As your sister in Christ, I pray that God will comfort you and begin to heal your broken hearts and restore you today as we meditate on His goodness and choose to trust His unfailing love for us once again. Today's first scripture reading is from Psalm 23. Verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence 
of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The next scripture reading is from Psalm one forty-five, verses seven through ten and seventeen through twenty-one. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And your godly ones shall bless you. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. To all who call upon Him in truth, He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless His holy name for ever and ever. Let's praise His goodness together with our radical thanksgiving. God. Our hearts explode with praise to you for your abundant goodness as we shout with ecstatic joy to celebrate your righteousness. Lord, everything you do is so beautiful, flowing from your goodness. You are gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You're good to everyone, and your tender mercies are over all your works. All creation stands in awe of you, and we all bless your glorious name, Father. You are our shepherd. We lack nothing. We have all that we need because you always provide for all of our needs according to your riches. In glory, you lead us to a beautiful resting place in green pastures and guide us to peaceful streams. That's where you restore and revive our lives. Father, make us whole again by the power of your truth and unfailing love. You fill us to overflowing with uncontainable joy. And perfect peace, as we trust in you, you open before us pathways to your pleasure and lead us along in your footsteps of righteousness, so that we can bring honor to your beautiful name, Lord. Even when we walk through the valley of deepest darkness, we will not be afraid. You are always with us. In those dark moments, you remain so close to us and lead us faithfully through 
your protection and guidance. The comfort of your unfailing love takes away all of our fears. Your authority is our true strength and peace. You prepare a feast for us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint us with the fragrance of your Holy Spirit. Our hearts overflow with your abundant blessings and abounding grace. So, Lord, why would we fear the future? For your goodness and unfailing love will pursue us all the days of our lives, and we will always be with you, living in your glorious presence forever. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.